good morning. What a joy it is together with God's people uh, this morning and uh, come worship with gratitude. The Bible tells us that God inhabits the praise of his people. Uh, and we come with thankful hearts this morning, uh, recognizing the reality that, uh, that we worship as a result of the gift of God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus that life-giving reconciliation work that he did on the cross that we sing, that we pray, that we hope, and that we serve, that we work. Amen. And so we come together reminded of that so often uh, throughout this service already. Let me invite you to open your Bibles with me uh, to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, chapter number 9. We've been going through a series through the book of Hebrews here on our Sunday morning uh, time together. And uh, we've taken a break for two weeks, so now we're back in chapter number 9, uh, picking up where we left off, beginning in verse 1. I trust and hope this has been an encouraging uh, walk through the person and work of Jesus Christ as uh, our writer keeps bringing us um, to encounter who our Lord and Savior is and just exactly what it is he has done for us. And really, chapter 9 and 10 is an exposition or a definition of that cross work of Jesus. What does it mean that he died for us? Uh, and, um, and what benefits uh, that self-giving sacrifice brings to the people of God. And so he begins in chapter number 9, really back in 8, but in chapter number 9 to explain that. Uh, and so let me begin reading at verse number 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which we, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, and it was a golden. In it was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubims of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to the arrangements, gifts, and sacrifices offered, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
this securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and sprinklings of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Pray with me. Father, we just pray that you would just use your word. Encourage us this morning in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Well, if you look back in chapter number 8, just to, to give us some context, the writer has even up to chapter number 8 been comparing this Old Testament and, and the sacrificial system and Judaism uh, as the people would have understood it in the first century. And, and he's comparing that with the fulfillment of what Christ has done. He's not saying that what we find in the Old Testament is evil. What he is saying is, uh, as good as it was, there's something far better. Uh, he is pointing a, a struggling group of believers who are tempted to go back to the traditional way of doing things and the old formality which they grew up under, uh, having learned and appreciated. And, and with that temptation, he's trying to tell them over and over that there is something far better found in Jesus Christ. In fact, all that they have seen and all that they have come to understand really is pointing to this one particular person. Now, with us, many of us, we don't have that connection with history and, and tradition with the Old Testament. It is good as we look at the first part of this to just get a glimpse of the tabernacle. We'll look at it in a moment. But, but we, too, need to be reminded the most central figure that God wants us to see in all of creation uh, and, and the most important figure in our life is Jesus Christ. And we see that in Colossians, as was read this morning, that there is no one like him, the image of the invisible God. He is preeminent above all things in every one. Not only do we see this preeminence, but it is that relationship to Jesus Christ which really, really makes the difference. It really is a matter of life and death for us. And so we, we do well as we walk through these pages in Hebrew uh, to know that, yes, we're not Jewish. Yes, these things can be foreign and odd to us. But the same principle, the same emphasis is still important to us this morning. That is Christ Jesus our Lord. And he begins in chapter number 8 as he begins dealing with this comparison, uh, speaking about a new covenant uh, dating back to Jeremiah's writing and he speaks about in verse number 10, For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I love that last phrase as he says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Committing himself to the preservation, committing himself to the supply and the care of this nation, the nation of Israel, but not just the nation of Israel, but all who come to him by faith. Then he begins, as we've already said in chapter number 9 and 10, to explain the, the significance of why Jesus had to die. If the cross is central in our theology, if it is the, the heartbeat of the gospel and what happened there, it, it is fitting for the church, the early church, to understand what did it mean that this man who claimed to be a Messiah hung there on that Friday and who died, and the writer wants us to know that. But he doesn't begin with Calvary or Golgotha. 
He doesn't begin in Pilate's Hall and those things that you and I are familiar with in the gospel. He begins with the Old Testament as he does all throughout his letter. He begins with what they come to understand and know God by as as what it means that God would dwell among his people. He begins with the tabernacle that was uh, instructed to Moses to build. Now, for your, own under, for your own learning, and you can read this in your own time, I'll just give you the reference if you want to write these down. The instructions for the tabernacle can be found in Exodus chapter 25 through 27, chapter 30, and chapter 40 in the reference to the building of the tabernacle and the instructions God gave to Moses. But in Exodus 25, 8, he makes this statement, God declaring to Moses that... Um, that make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst or in the midst of the nation of Israel. Now we might ask ourselves, what does it mean that God has favored the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? What does it mean that he has called them out to be his people? How can we see this, this favor? And we can say there's many things we can look at. The Exodus account, one in particular. He delivered them out of bondage. I mean, they were slaves in Egypt. And here comes God with Moses and and brings them out of bondage, even making a distinction between this nation, even in his judgments of plagues. We can say other things that he did, miraculous parting the Red Sea and, and the manna which came down from heaven and, the, and, and all of the provisions that God gave. But here God points us to something else. And, and Moses actually uses this as as a defense or as a description of the nation of Israel in his prayer in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. How or what makes us different from every other nation on the earth? And he says, is it not your presence? And again, as he preaches to the children of the exiles in, in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter number 4, he reminds them what sets them apart, what makes them distinct is the nearness of God. He says in chapter 4, verse 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And that visual, that visual reminder of the nearness of God was captured in the tabernacle. It was there in which would, would be the center of the nation as the tribes would, would uh, tent or put their tents around it, and they could look to the center of the center of their their encampment, and they would always see this structure. It was the tabernacle which would convey to the people of the dwelling place of God that he would dwell or live in their midst. But not just as a home or as a sanctuary or what we might say later on as the house of God. It was also here at this tabernacle which would be referred to as the tent of meeting. It was here where the people would meet with God. A special worship uh, as they come to uh, to worship him and offer up their sacrifices. The significance of this can be seen at the end of Exodus in chapter number 40, verse 34. As Moses finished the work, the Bible says, And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, showing that God was with his people, living among them. And our writer takes us, to the, takes us through a look at this. And in the first five verses describing for us in chapter number 9 the, the structure itself, not in lengthy detail, if you want the size and measurements and all of that, then you can read those chapters I referred you to. Uh, they tell me a cubic is 18 inches, so that'll help you out as you read through that. Nevertheless, he does give us an overview of this structure. 
He says, first of all, this uh, first covenant had regulations for worship, and it was an earthly place of holiness. It was, it was a place God would meet with his people upon earth. It was earthly, and you'll see the significance of that later on. It was a place of holiness or a place marked off, devoted to God. It wasn't what you could do whatever you wanted to there. It was some place which God has designated, devoted to himself. It was it was a holy sanctuary. But he goes on and describes some of the furniture as if you would walk into this tabernacle. You would look and there on the left you would find a lampstand. Uh, and you would see it there being uh, taken care of daily by the priest. And, and they would light it and the light would light the room and the holy place. Uh, you can find uh, different pictures of that and I don't have all that for you. You can, you can do that study on your own. Uh, Thank the Lord for internet, right? I think you can even buy a small replica on Amazon. Pretty sure it's not the same one. But you see this as you walk in. On the left, you'll find a lampstand as mentioned to us in verse number 2. And on the right, you'll find a table which the bread of presence or the showbread would be placed. Six cakes, two stacks of six would be placed on this table every Sabbath. And there the... The priest would maintain that place and keep it fresh. As you look forward and walking in the tabernacle, on your left, the lampstand, and on your right, you'd have the table of presents or the table of showbread, and then you would look dead in front of you, there would be an altar, a golden altar of incense. It would be here that uh, that Zechariah at this altar, which Zechariah would meet the angel of the Lord, which would prophesy of John the Baptist offering incense. It was here that it would guard the way into what would we come to understand in verse number 3, the most holy place. Or you may have heard it as the holy of holies. Beyond the altar of incense, there would be a veil. And he describes that for us. Not in detail, you can, you can find the description, but there was a barrier separating the holy place from another room in the tabernacle called the most holy place. There the Ark of the Covenant, verse number 4, would rest. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, for our understanding, was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Declaring in the Ark of the Covenant the holiness of God and those Ten Commandments which he gave Moses and the sovereignty of God in choosing for himself a high priest and Aaron's rod and, and the provision of God in the, in the urn of manna which God gave the children of Israel. Verse number five, he describes it further saying on the or above the Ark of the Covenant rested the mercy seed and cherubims which faced each other. And he says at the end of verse number five, that's not exactly all I want to tell you. Well, that's my interpretation of the latter part of the verse. He says, of these things we can not now speak in detail. He says, that's not the point I want to get across. This is the structure that they had come to know and the place that God had set apart for his namesake to be worshipped. And he says, this is good, but, but it wasn't just meant to be something to see, which it would have been a marvelous thing to look at, I'm sure, if you were a Levite. But if you weren't, you couldn't. Not inside, anyway. 
But he goes on and describes not only the tent itself, but speaking of the operation of it or the ministry of it, he says in verse number 6, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. And I don't know if you have much of an imagination. I struggle with mine very often. And you can imagine a room with a candlestick and the showbread and the altar of incense. And he says the priests come and go, those who have been designated to do that, daily doing their required task and their duties. It was a pretty busy, active place. He says it's not uncommon to see that there as they serve God and serve the people of God. But he points out in verse number 7, but into the second room. And to the most holy place, that that place where the Shekinah glory would rest over the Ark of the Covenant, that place was a little bit different. He describes it this, describing the Day of Atonement, the second, only the high priest goes. Only one man was allowed to go in that place, go beyond the veil that separated the two. And not, not just any way he wanted and any time he wanted. It wasn't just, you know, I left my, my camel leash in there and I got to go get it or, or whatever the guy had. It, it was a very solemn consideration to enter into the presence of God. It wasn't on his terms. It wasn't on his time. But on God's terms and God's times, he could only go in once a year. Could you imagine building such a structure with such beauty the Ark of the Covenant laid with gold inside and out and all the things in it and, and, and all of that to be hid away in a room to only be seen once a year. But he says not only was it something he could only go in or would only be allowed to go in once a year, but not without taking blood, not without an offering or sacrifice, blood for his own sins and blood for the sins of the people mentioned at the end of verse number 7. He would enter in, but he would not enter in without something to offer. If he would go in without blood, he would be taking his life in his own hands. Not only would he take his life in his own hands, but he would enter in not, not serving the people of God at all, not offering something to God for the sins of the people. And this was the ritual which took place. And some of you are caught up I'm sure like me and fascinated with ceremonies and you like traditions and, and, and maybe the way things go on and, and I can remember going to my grandmother's church it was a Lutheran church we were independent Baptists so we were anti anything tradition except for the traditions we made right the church started in 1945 or 50 whenever um, but we would go to my grandmother's church and they would have liturgy and they would have the procession of stuff and the priest would, or I guess he would pastor, I don't know what you call the, the guys there, so if you can help me later, he would wear a robe and, and the choir would all wear a robe and it was quite odd to my brother and myself. But there's something fascinating about tradition. And, and I would imagine if you were Jewish and you grew up under this and you loved and longed to see the priest and his his vestments and taking off that and washing and putting on the, the special garments that he would wear to go into the holy place, which were white. And as he went in and he would offer the blood for the people and he would come out and he would wash again and put on his priestly robes. There's something fascinating and, and joyous about that ceremony. Again, we're not talking about good and evil. We're talking about good and better. 
in the essence of, of a dress rehearsal and the main event. And as much as, as all of this was, was good and a gift from God, it in and of itself was incomplete. It was all pointing beyond itself, something greater than what was going on. Sometimes we feel that way in life. There's something greater going on than our, our little existence. And, and that's what we see in the Bible, that, that all of this going on was something, a part of something greater than the event itself. The high priest pointing to a greater high priest. The sacrifice pointing to a greater sacrifice. The service and the worship. As beautiful as it was, it was, it was insufficient to do the job. In fact, it was never meant to do the job that we tend to think it was. But it does teach us something. It teaches, as you read through your Old Testament, that God is holy. And that everything his name is touched for the worship of him is set apart, not to be used any way it, you wanted to use it, not to be carried out any way you wanted to carry out, but it was, it was sacred, it was devoted solely for the glory and purpose of God. In fact, not only with the tabernacle and with the temple, God calls Israel to be holy because he himself is holy as he has called them out in a command and a call in which they would not live out. It teaches us that God is holy. Holy other than us, holy in his awesomeness, holy in his righteousness, in his purity, in his goodness, in his judgment. He is holy, holy, holy is what we read in the book of Isaiah. And when you see all of this played out in, in chapter number 9, 1 through 10 here, you, you see that there's an understanding that we are not holy. Isaiah taught us that, didn't he? As he saw God high and lifted up. And what did he say? Woe is me, cursed is me. Why? Because I'm sinful. And no one with a right understanding of God will boast in his own righteousness. Will boast at how good he is. And if he does, he doesn't have the God of the Bible. You see, we're taught that. We're taught that in the fact that the Bible tells us here in verse number 8 that, 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 that with all of the blessing of God dwelling among his people, there was still a hand up blocking the presence of God, the fullness of the presence of God, that veil which separated the priest from the high priest, but the tabernacle itself which separated the worshiper from the priest. You and I would go there if we were Israel or we were Jewish. We would go there and we wouldn't be allowed to enter even in the first area. Just left in the outer courts. He says that in verse number 8, By this the Holy Spirit, speaking of the, word of the, the work of the Holy Spirit and preserving his word, communicating his word, he's saying that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. What is he saying? He's saying that it's blocked off. And that's a mercy and act of God's grace. He even tells the children of Israel that I will not go with you because if I do, I'll consume you because of your wickedness and the hardness of your heart. And so not only is he teaching us the holiness of God, he's reminding us that through this process that, that, that the, the full presence of God is barred. It, it is forbidden. We cannot, we're not worthy, we're not suited, we're not able to enter into his presence. Even the high priest who would enter in would not enter in without blood, without the incense of the altar which burned before the veil. 
But secondly, he shows us not only the veil which had which stood in the way and the, the old covenant, which unable to take that veil away. He says that, that in the old covenant, this offering up could not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. Consider what he says in verse number nine, which is symbolic of this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They had to continually offer them up. And year after year, there's a continual reminder that their sin needed to be dealt with. Year after year, there was a continual reminder of that need for a propitiation. That's a big, tough word, isn't it? You probably used this last week. What does he mean by that? Without our sin being appeased, the justice of God being appeased against our sin, year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, animal after animal, there was a reminder, constant reminder. And the psalmist even laments of this in his own sin as he pins that great repentant psalm in Psalms 51, doesn't he, when he says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He further adds... For you do not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. I know we don't do that today. We don't offer up animals and things like that to to make God happy, if you want to use it in the terminology. But we still struggle, just like every other generation, with what do we do with a guilty conscience? What do we do with the fact that we've sinned against our neighbor or we sinned against God? How do we deal with that? And and that struggle in this life, isn't it real, where we we try to make up for it? We try to offer up things and and do enough things and and be enough or better enough uh, to just try to erase it. You know, the reality is it still nags at us. That's why some of us don't like to be alone. And some of us can't stand to listen to our own voice because it's a reminder, isn't it, as you look in the mirror? What do you do with that? Well, the law, you could, you could try to live it out. We could, we could be Muslims. We could live that way, believe that way. And sometimes we do live that way and believe that way, don't we? That if I do enough good, it'll just work itself out and it'll overcome the bad. And the truth is it doesn't work that way. It never happens. There's never enough good to undo the bad. There's, a, there's that longing and nagging in the conscience of, of men that condemns us. There's some who live this life who are living uncondemned because their conscience have been seared. They have, they have ignored its voice so long that it's hardened and, and nothing breaks through. But the reality, most of us have to deal with that, the guilt and the shame. Sin brings about both of those. And he says there is no way the law... And the worship and offering of animals can deal with it. It still remains. In fact, Psalms 51 is a lament and is a prayer of repentance of the psalmist to pleading for the mercy of God to take away that stain. As he says, it is not sacrifices which you accept, but a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart which God accepts. As you wonder this morning, what does it take for us live our lives like the rest of the world, trying to do better, give enough, and it never is enough? Or do we we come boldly to God and ask for mercy? And that's what he's pointing these people to. The cure, the answer, the help is not withheld from God. 
It is given to us by God. It's not given to us in our own work and our own merit and what we can earn and achieve and, and, and all of those things like that. It is a free gift of God's grace. The cure that we need is found in, in God himself. In particularly is found in this one individual which he has been preaching all through this book of Hebrews and that is in Jesus Christ. Look, as he begins in verse number 11, all of this being true and all of this wonderful, he points us to this anticipation of a final sacrifice. Let me just mention this, even as he speaks about in verse number 8, the veil which stands in the way, he speaks about it in a language where it won't always be there. Notice again in verse number 8, the holy place is not yet open. He's, I don't know if you're like me, but you go to a place that is not yet open. You wait in the car and wait till the, and you get to the sign and the number. And up here it's kind of hard because you don't know when a place is open or closed. You look on the map and it tells you it's open at 11. It may be 11 o'clock on Thursday and not Monday, you know, and you just get kind of confused. But I want you to see what he has done here in Jesus in the offer of the gospel. That is not something that has not been uh, anticipated from the beginning. In the giving of the tabernacle, in the giving of the law, in all of this, even in the veil itself, his preaching to us that there is an anticipation that all of this will be fulfilled in one person. Now, if that's true, if the identity of a nation, their whole worship system is fulfilled in one person, what a person that must be. Amen? For after all, we remind ourselves that Jesus is the bread of life which came down from heaven. That he is the chosen priest of God. He is the law keeper. He is the light of the world. The one who intercedes perfectly for his people. He is the one who has come to tabernacle with us. That we might behold the glory of God. And know truly that God is with us and among us. Not in a tent made by man's hands. But in a body which God has given us. In the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's where we come to understand the favor of God. Well, he goes on to explain this. Verses number 11 through 14. And actually taking on down to chapter number 10. We won't go through all that this morning. But he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not something that the children of Israel built. Not, not something that has, has touched this earth. He says Christ has entered into not, not a holy place that, that Herod had decorated in the temple or any other earthly places that you consider, but he has entered into the, the, the presence of God Almighty in his throne. That place which we cannot see, that place which God dwells. He has entered into this place He says, verse number 12, he entered once and for all. In other words, he's not going to go back next week or the next couple of weeks. He's not going to go back next year and offer himself up again next year and again next year and next year or every time you take communion. For those of you who are raised up in in a Catholic background, every time you take communion, it's the idea that once again, Christ's body and blood is being sacrificed for our sins. That's not what the Bible teaches. He says here that he has entered into this place once and for all. 
I don't know a lot, but I can understand what this means. It means once and for all. There's no need for another. Uh, there's no need to, to improve it, update it, do a, do a new version which come out of it. This is a one-time deal. It's sufficient. When you look at and consider what the cross is and the work and Him giving His life, you must consider the atonement for sin as a sufficient sacrifice acceptable unto God. Enters this place once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and cows, but by means of His own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Notice what kind of redemption he said. What does your translation say? Not temporary. Christ is not a temporary Savior. He doesn't just do a half a job. What he has secured for us is eternal. Now he'll speak more about the gift of this redemption later on. and We'll look at that next week, that gift of eternal life. But, but just to, to, to kind of whet your appetite for that, he's saying that our redemption isn't temporary. What he has provided for us, what is offered to us in the gospel is eternal redemption. Once and for all. There's no other sacrifice. There's no other need for another sacrifice. What he's done is good enough to secure us for eternity. And by the way, there's nothing beyond that, right? Once and for all. Done deal. And he says, not by the blood of bulls and goats. Not through a, 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 a cow or a goat. Not by calves. But he enters this place by his own blood. By his own blood. Now you know the blood is is the is the evidence or, or is the testimony of life itself. The animals that were sacrificed up were were killed. They were put to death. The blood signified that life which was given because we understand what the Bible teaches that the soul that sins will what? The consequences of sin. When you eat of the tree, when you sin against God, you will surely die. And the, and the repercussions of sin, which the Bible says, just to put us all in the same boat, that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And, and, and all of us, by right, deserve and face and anticipate that end death. He's saying that, that here Christ is, is not giving a blood transfusion. He is giving his life. His blood being sprinkled in heaven is a testimony that he did not spare himself. He did not save his life and just give a little bit. He gave his full life for the redemption of all who will come to him by faith. He gave his life. In fact, he goes on and says in verse number 13, he says that the blood of bulls and goats and sprinkling of devout persons and the ashes of heifers sanctify the purification of the flesh. What is he saying? He's saying if the ceremonial system made them clean for worship and to live in community and fellowship, how much more? How much more will the blood of Jesus do for those who, to whom it's applied? He describes that sacrifice in verse number 14 under several different descriptions. He says, first of all, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, I take that to, to mean there's a division, whether that's his human spirit or his divine spirit, or whether that's a Holy Spirit, I take that to be the Holy Spirit. 
offering his blood up through the work of the Holy Spirit, speaking of our redemption being Trinitarian. In other words, all of God in this. They're not in conflict with each other. All of God in the redemption of sinners. So he offered his blood through the eternal spirit. But notice, secondly, right after the eternal spirit, which has really just taken me back, he offered himself. What does he say? Well, not like animals that you go just go put a rope around them and drag them to the to the sacrifice or to the to the altar, and then they do what they do there. But it teaches you and me this morning that Jesus Christ is no hesitant Savior. He's not reluctant. And I say that because sometimes we can feel like salvation is kind of that way. So-and-so found the sinner's prayer, and so he's got to do it, you know, and he's got to save him. And so he just kind of barely made it in into, into the church or into heaven or whatever it might be. You say that's kind of silly. But how many of you here this morning that know Christ and put your faith and trust in him have not felt that way? You're some kind of less saint or some kind of less Christian. Well, the Bible says that when Christ gave his life for us, he gave it willingly. He was not drugged to the cross. And I love the picture that he carried his cross, showing us that he set his face to Calvary to do the will of the Father. We come to this idea of our salvation is as a, an outpouring of the love of God, a voluntary, a caring, giving sacrifice. The Father loved the world and he gave his Son. And the Son is not, he's not oblivious to this. That he loves his bride and he gives his life for his bride. He's willing to go that, that distance and give himself for the purchase of her. I was thinking as we were going through that about all the promises and it was so neat with a Spurgeon quote. I can hardly say things like Spurgeon, but it was so neat as... He was saying that and Jesus saying to his disciples, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will surely come again. Not because he just has to fulfill passages of scripture or make sure revelation turns out the way it was written. Because he wants to. It is his desire. It is his delight to do the will of the Father. It is not just his delight in the Father, but it is his delight in the bride that she be where he is. And and whether that's through the cloud or through the clod, however you want to look at that, but when it's your time to meet Christ, it is not just going through the motion. It is being welcomed into the presence of a Savior who desires you to be with him. He was a willing sacrifice. Willing. Willing to give himself up for us freely. The Bible says at the end here in the book of Hebrews that he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him, willing to be exalted and glorified in his bride in the church. Not only was he a willing sacrifice in verse number 14, he says, offering himself, he offered himself without blemish to God. He was sinless. You know the passage very well. He that knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. There's something fascinating about that. Jesus was willing to take your sin. 
Take your transgression against God and put them on his back and be treated the way you ought to be treated. And then, of course, he offers himself to God. He says this sacrifice was not to Satan or some other perverse idea of the atonement, but this was a sacrifice offered up to God for our redemption. But he says to the end of this is what? With the offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's many ways we can look at this past, uh, this latter part of this verse and look at this as being purified from the dead works of the law. That could be a valid translation. It could be purifying us from our own attempts to attain salvation or make ourselves right before God. Surely we come to understand that is pointless. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But he delivers us from that. That's what the message of the gospel is. You, you really only have two options. Hey, either you sit here this morning in, in, in this congregation and, and in this time and you say, I will figure it out and I'll make it somehow or, or I don't care or, or whatever you say, but in essence you're saying the same thing. Or we come by faith and receive the gift of him working it out for us. We rest in his work and not our own. And so you see this kind of understanding being purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. But there's also something, as he says later on, it is appointed, verse 27, for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. There's something about the reality about standing before God guilty and condemned. He said, it is through the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the sprinkling of his blood, through the gospel and through the cross, that he clears our conscience. That you and I can enter in and with boldness into the most holy place with confidence that we will be received. With confidence that we will be received. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that as we put our faith and trust in him, we stand before God as righteous. We stand before him as holy, as set apart, as sanctified, as, as accepted in the beloved. It is in Christ that he cleanses us and washes us and makes us fit to serve the living God. He cleanses our conscience. And I don't know if you're like me, sometimes we have to bring our minds, disciple and, and, and preach the gospel to ourselves and bring our minds back to that glorious truth. As the devil brings up those sins in our past and in our life and we dwell on those and they haunt us sometimes, maybe I'm the only one. And then you come back to what the gospel says, paid, paid. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who, who are in Christ Jesus. And that the sin which held me captive, the guilt and the shame which marked my life, that which I could not stand in the depths of my own heart and in the silence as I looked at myself in the mirror and as you've done the same thing, has been dealt with through the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been sanctified and set apart in him. It has been covered. I'm free from that. That's what he offers us in, this, this, in the work of Jesus Christ. There's a very thing he was doing from the very beginning. And he's telling this, this young church, he's like, this is what God had in mind. 
not bulls and goats, not the reminder of your sin, but the reminder of his sacrifice. That's what we do when we take communion, isn't it? It's not a reminder of my sin. It's a reminder of my Savior. It's a reminder that I am accepted in Him and and we are cleansed in Him and we're preaching the gospel in Him. That's what he's saying here, that in verse number 14, that, that through the blood of Christ, through that offering of Himself, He brings us to this place of of having a clear conscience before God. Amen. With that, if that is not your hope this morning, if if all of that has sounded foreign to you, I just invite you to come to Christ for the forgiveness of sin. He did not die on the cross because he had to. He died on the cross because he wanted to. To redeem sinners to rescue broken people, to to help and and to work in people's life who don't have it all together, to save the self-righteous and to save the the wicked all all together, to redeem them a people for himself that may stand with boldness and confidence in the day of judgments and say, it is in him, it is in him that I am covered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Surely there's a well of truth found in just our understanding of him that we we cannot plumb the depths of. Oh, but what joy it is to peer into. And so I pray, Father, that this morning, those here that don't know you, if there's any, Lord, that they would not hold on to their sin or their rebellion or, 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 or their doubt any longer, but they would fully put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Even now, repent of their sins. Confess Jesus to the Lord of the glory, to your glory. Even as he says in the book of Romans, they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I pray for all of us as a church that we would just meditate and chew on this, this glorious reminder that we come in here freely. Enter into your presence. We, we not only enter into your presence, but you dwell within us. We are now the temple of God. And all of that through the cleansing, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.